But as we head into this Holy Week, it is a week set aside where we go back and look at that last week of Jesus' life. As we get ready for that as a church, we are praying about how we might be the light and salt we need to be in people's lives. Palm Sunday, what's the big deal about Palm Sunday? Well, that's the day that Jesus set his face towards the cross, towards Calvary. That was the time when Jesus entered in and came into Jerusalem so he might take on your sin and on mine. That's a big deal. And they were expecting a king. They just were expecting the wrong king. As we think about today, today was the day where Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, where he would spend those last days before his arrest, before his beating, and before a cross, three days before his resurrection. And this Friday, we will also be uh, remembering. While we're in here praising and rejoicing, Good Friday becomes a humbling moment. Matter of fact, if we can put up the next slide, it is a reminder of the three phases of that Holy Week. We find there at uh, Palm Sunday, there on the left, that's our logo for his arrival, his coming towards the cross. When we get to Good Friday, this Friday, we'll gather up together at 6.30. I want to encourage you to be here and bring somebody with you. And just as the disciples spent that last supper with Jesus, we too will celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And we'll remember why Jesus went to Jerusalem. We'll remember why Jesus would shed his blood and why his body would be broken for our sins. That time of agonizing in the garden and, and pouring out sweat drops of blood because of the stress of all of our sin being placed on him. We'll remember that Friday. But then we'll gather next Sunday. And, and here's where you better listen up or you could be really embarrassed next week. Uh, next Sunday, we won't be meeting in here. We won't be having our regular schedule. We're going to combine into one service, and we'll be meeting outside by the annex for Easter outdoors. I want you to get a lawn chair oiled up, dusted off. I want you to find a friend, and if you have to go buy them a lawn chair, uh, do whatever it takes to get them here next Sunday at what time? What time? 10.30. 10.30, 10.30 one service, no small groups, just celebrating that he is alive. Matter of fact, turn to your neighbor and say, he is alive. Turn to your other neighbor, make a hole around the room. There you go, he is alive. But before he would die and rise again, he had to first be obedient to the Father's will. In Matthew 21, you don't have to turn there, but in Matthew 21, it talks about Palm Sunday. It talks about that at the right time, Jesus would call out to his disciples and he would tell them that there would be a colt, a donkey, that would be tied up. They were to go and find that donkey, bring that to him, and he would enter into Jerusalem, not on a stallion, not on a white horse, but on a lowly donkey, just as it was prophesied in Scripture. For it say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. For generations, they'd been looking for Messiah. They had been told, it was prophesied, that there would be one who would rule over Israel again. After years of rebellion and years of judgment, they had been conquered by nation after nation after nation. Now, in this setting, Rome owns Israel and is in control of Jerusalem. And there's been this miracle worker named Jesus who's been changing lives and has been turning the whole world upside down. They knew that this was that prophesied king. 
And on this day, as they would yell out to him, and they would celebrate like we did this morning, and they would declare, Hosanna to the son of David. They would sing their praises because they thought the king had come. But interesting enough, Jesus gave them a sign in the fulfilled prophecy of riding in on a donkey. You see, whenever a king would come into a territory where they had conquered, they always came in on a steed, on a stallion, declaring their victory over the territory. If anyone ever appeared on a donkey, it was actually a sign of surrender. It was a sign, it was a peace offering. And as Jesus came into Jerusalem, he didn't come in on a stallion. He came in to declare, I am the prince of peace. Yes, I'm king of kings, and I'm lord of lords, but more importantly, I'm the prince of peace. I come so that you might have peace with God and know the peace of God in your life. He came the first time as the prince of peace. He's coming a second time, praise God, and he will be on a stallion when he comes back the second time, and I hope you're ready for the second coming of Christ. But until then, we get to celebrate him, our Lord and our Savior. As he arrived in Jerusalem, people were talking about it. Everybody in town, it says that the whole town was stirred, and everyone was asking, who is this guy? That's a great question. Before we look at Elijah, we better understand who Jesus is first. Before we move on anymore, every person in this room has already made some decision about Jesus because even this whole crowd, they had their answers too. When I was growing up, I had my answers about who Jesus was. I didn't exactly know who Jesus was. I just knew that Jesus was. I knew there was, I just knew it. I knew there was a Jesus, even though I didn't grow up in church. They knew that there was a Jesus. Listen to their answer. They said, oh, that's the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. That was true. He was a prophet. He was from Nazareth. But that was only part of the story. And the sad thing for so many people in this world is they're familiar with Jesus. They know Jesus is. They just don't know Jesus for who he really is. He wasn't just a prophet. We're about to study a prophet, Elijah. We've been studying his life. He was a man born of a man and a woman. Jesus, yes, he served the role of prophet. He came to declare the word of the Lord. The issue is he is the Lord. God from heaven came to dwell among us. For God so loved you, he was sent by the Father for your sin and for mine. He came from heaven, not from a man and not from a woman. He came from the Holy Spirit, took on flesh so he could take on the sins of the world. He is not just a prophet. He wasn't just the creator of another religion. He is the Savior of the world. That's who we celebrate, the Son of David. Glory to God in the highest. Amen? So he came... Not to set him free from the politics of the day. You know how we want somebody to set us free from the politics of our day, but we got bigger issues than that. We need someone to set us free in our hearts and in our souls. We need a Savior for our sins. And so Jesus came, as Alex even prayed earlier, humbling himself and coming in a lowly fashion, but also coming in a lowly fashion of being ushered in on this donkey, declaring, He is your Prince. A peace. He came to bring ministry to the dead who needed life. That's exactly what Elijah is going to do. If you have your Bibles, you can start making your way over to 1 Kings 17. I'm going to use that as a transition into Elijah, who lived before the coming of Christ, who was a prophet of God, but shows us how to have a growing faith. We learn from his life that as we start out in faith, 
God is the one who has to grow our faith. He has to mature it. He has to grow it. And so if you look at the timeline on the screen, you'll see what we've covered so far. The beginning of 1 Kings, we see God's call on Elijah's life. God reaches down into Tishba. He raises up Elijah to be his child and to be his prophet. God also reaches out of heaven into your life if you'll let him. You have to respond to that call, and God calls all of us first to himself. He calls us, no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws them. We come to God in that calling. We come to him in salvation. But after we experience the saving call of God, we now have the sanctifying call of God on our lives, and that's to be used for his glory. We find that Elijah responded, and, and, and God blesses him with a powerful ministry. He gets a ministry to the king of his nation. He just didn't get a little old pulpit somewhere. God gives him the palace to be his pulpit, and he shows up to preach to the most wicked king that Israel had ever known to that point, a guy named Ahab. What a mountaintop experience, a little old redneck dude, little old rural community, just like most of our hometowns here in Oklahoma, and God puts him in the White House, if you will, the palace, and he is preaching to the king. What a cool opportunity. But between every mountaintop, there's always a what? There's always a valley. And after that mountaintop experience, God is still growing Elijah's faith. He wasn't a super saint. He wasn't Superman. But he had a super God that was doing supernatural things in his life. So God takes him from the palace to a place called Kirith. That means to be broken down. He brings him to a place of brokenness. Before in the palace, Elijah says, hey, king, it ain't going to rain till I say so, as if Elijah was in control. Elijah had a lot to learn. Yes, he was being obedient, and yes, God was going to use him, but he didn't control the rain, only God does. He had to learn who he was and who God was, and so God takes him to a place of Kirith. The next place where we left off last week is a place of humility. It's Zarephath. That was a town where they did all the refining of their pure, uh, precious metals. And what they were doing literally in Zarephath is what God was going to have to do in the heart of Elijah and what God needs to do in all of our hearts. He doesn't take us to Zarephath to punish us. He takes us to Zarephath to purge us, to get those things out of our lives that owned us before Christ, those things that uh, are, are, are the issues of our flesh and the things of this world, and God purges those things out of our lives that we might become in the image of a holy God. So here he is at Zarephath. He has been broken. He has been humbled. It's been two and a half years or so that he's experienced these places called Kirith and Zarephath. Well, what comes next? Uh, you notice at the end, he gets another mountaintop experience. He gets to Zarephath and God says, there's going to be a widow there to take care of you. Woohoo! Upgrade from the ravens. I get a widow. And when he gets there, she's broken down. She's bankrupt. And she is ready to die along with her only son. In that, Elijah doesn't live by the facts. He doesn't get discouraged. He doesn't say, God, you failed me again. No, his faith is growing. And he doesn't live by the facts. He lives by faith. God said she's going to provide. She's going to provide. And he tells her, you submit that unto the Lord and God will multiply it. And God does. God brings life where there was death, just like Jesus did in Jerusalem. He now is doing that through Elijah, and he experiences the miracle of God taking nothing and making it sustainable for life. After every mountaintop, there's a what? Here it comes. Verse 17, the rest of the story. 
Look at 1 Kings 17, verse 17. It came about after these things, after what things? After God was working these miracles. After God was ministering through Elijah to a widow who had no faith and was ready to give up on life. And after this season, after these things, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, this widow, surrendered to preach the gospel and became a prophet who studied under Elijah. Is that what happened? No, take a look at it. He became sick. And that sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. What this widow believed weeks earlier has now come true. Not because there wasn't groceries. Before she said they were going to die because they didn't have any groceries. Now they got all the groceries and he still dies. You ever notice that you can be experiencing God and still experience some terrible times? Did you know you can be in the center of God's will and still experience grief? Did you know that while you are serving the Lord and experiencing the Lord, you still will experience life issues on this planet? He's dead. And so the woman, the widow, said to Elijah, What do I have to do with you, O man of God? Have you come here to bring my iniquity to remembrance and put my son to death? And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her bosom and he carried him up to the upper room where he was living. And he laid him on his own bed, and he cried out to the Lord. As you go through the rest of the story, we find Elijah stepping in, walking by faith, not by the facts. The facts are worse now. When he got there the first time, there was no groceries. The facts are now, here's a widow's son, and there's no breath in him. He's dead. Growing faith, growing affliction, growing challenges. That's what God does to stretch our faith. And so remember, why is he in Zarephath? Well, one, for his faith to grow. But I believe, number two, that as his faith is being refined, just like yours and mine, that faith is to be contagious in someone else's life. God's not only growing your faith for you to become more faithful in his faithfulness, God is growing your faith to use your faith in someone's life who has no faith. This widow had no faith. She was faithless. And when he arrived in her life, he begins to minister to her through his growing faith. Now, Elijah's at a point, uh, you can deal with a, with a physical realm. You can deal with somebody who maybe doesn't have as many groceries as you have. I can, ha- I can help a widow who still has a little flour and a little oil, but what do I do when that widow has lost her only son? Now what do I do? What could Elijah do? Well, he did the only thing he could do and take it to the one, the only one who could do. Jeremiah, the prophet, verse 17, I'll put it on the screen, taught his generation the same truth Elijah's learning. O Lord our God, behold, you've made the heavens and the earth your great power. It was by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Was this too difficult for Elijah? Yes, it was. What anything Elijah could do. Elijah couldn't fix this. And there will be things that come your way that are beyond you. Now you can either give up like the widow, woe is me, and I'm going to die. Or you can respond like Elijah and take it to the one who can do all things. The one who makes all things possible. Verse 27, for behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too difficult for me? And we would all say, no, there's nothing. 
ah, except this thing in my life. We can give God the Sunday school and, oh, there's nothing too difficult for God. And then all of a sudden we have an experience and all of a sudden there's something too difficult for God. been very easy for Elijah to say done this is over dude's dead nothing I can do this is even beyond God this is too difficult but there's nothing impossible to God Luke chapter 17 Jesus looked at the people and said how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God you know why because that is their God their wealth their wealth is providing everything they think they need everything that they want and so they are blinded by their independence from God it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle Jesus said than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God and those who heard him say this said then who can be saved isn't that a question that ought to be answered who can be saved Jesus answered this way listen to what he said these things they're impossible with people are possible with God I can't save myself I can't save you. Elijah couldn't save the widow. Elijah couldn't save the widow's son. But Elijah took the son and the widow's hurt to the one who can. God can do all things, even that which is impossible in this realm in which we live. Do you believe that? Are you living that and are you sharing that with somebody who needs to grow in faith from your faith? So let's learn from Elijah very quickly. Take some notes. Rewind to verse 17, 1 Kings 17. Let's take a look at the story again. Very quickly, let me break it down. Verse 17. After these things, the son of the woman, he gets sick, and it was so severe that he had no breath left in him, and he dies. Now, the context is this. Things have been going great, mountaintop experience. I've made it through Kirith. I've made it through Zarephath. God's been refining me. God's been breaking me. God's now using me. And we've seen revival in Zarephath. But even amongst good times in Zarephath, there come challenging times in Oklahoma City, in Yukon, in Edmond, and wherever you may be coming from, wherever you may be even viewing online. We have people viewing all around the world through our YouTube channel. And wherever you are today, God is still alive and God is still moving, but also suffering continues this side of heaven. He gets to this point, what do you do when you don't know what to do? Well, I think we ought to learn from Elijah. What did Elijah do when he couldn't do anything? What did Elijah do when he didn't know what to do? Let's take a look at it, verse 18. It's pretty interesting. As God's refining him, he's going to use this circumstance. And he's going to use a misaligned widow. God's even going to use reckless theology that many people embrace on this planet to refine Elijah's faith and also, quite frankly, the woman's faith. Take a look at it. So the woman has this experience. Her son is dead, and she says to Elijah, What do I have to do with you, O man of God? Can you hear the mockery in her voice? Can you see the quotation marks being flipped? Hey, man of God, what am I going to do with you? Why are you in my house? Why have you come to me in Zarephath? You don't live here. You don't belong here. And God's put you in my life, and all I get is nothing but death. Oh, really? Let's get some perspective here. Just just a few weeks ago or days ago when I entered into your town, you weren't going to live 24 hours. God has given you more life, you and your son. And you're going to come at me? See how distorted our theology gets? 
when times get difficult? Well, the widow starts to do what many do in times of tragedy. We play the blame game. It's got to be somebody's fault. We got to pin it on somebody else. And so she wants to pin it on Elijah. This would have never happened if you weren't in my life, Elijah, O man of God. The blame game. That goes way back to the very beginning of time. All the way back to the very first human beings. Adam and Eve, created by God in his image, placed in a paradise. They choose and rebel against God and invite sin into the human equation. They're now hiding from God in their sin and in their nakedness, and God comes a calling. He calls them out of their sin because he's going to redeem them. He's going to restore them in that moment, but they first have to admit and confess what they've done. And in that moment, God says, Adam, who told you you were naked? You remember what Adam said? You remember why he got into the mess he was in? You remember Adam's excuse? The woman you gave me, God. Gentlemen, I hope you've learned your lesson. I hope that you have arrived at sounder theology than the blame game. It has never paid off well. Matter of fact, on the eighth day, God, because of this moment, God had to create the couch just for the man who had the blame game. And 40 days later, the couch wasn't a good enough lesson, so he had to create the doghouse just for man because we want to play the blame game. How many times do we blame someone else when in reality, it's my lack of faith? Not only does she blame Elijah, she doesn't stop there. She then moves on and she blames herself. Have you come here to remind me that I'm a sinner and and my life's been a mess, and that's why this has happened, because we assume the reason bad things happen is because of something somebody's done or something we've done. Remember when they asked Jesus, why is this guy blind or lame? I forget which one it was, but he had this lifelong disease. Was it his parents' fault? Was it his fault? We always want to place the blame. And we get distorted because the enemy brings bad theology in times of trouble. Or we just plain flat blame God. Man of God, Elijah, God, God, God. Where's God when my son is dead? There's no God. God wouldn't let this happen. Do you see the distorted theology? But you see, Elijah doesn't turn from that. Elijah doesn't say, you know what, lady? You're the most ungrateful, selfish. I mean, he could have he gone profit on her. He doesn't do that. Let's take a look at what he does. Verse 19, take a look. Let's learn from his story. How do you help those who are hurting? How do you help those that God has put in your path? You see, God put this widow in Elijah's path to stretch his faith, but also for his faith to make a difference in her life. Somebody's been placed in your life to stretch your faith, but that your faith might also impact their life. Look at verse 19. He said to her, does he preach? No. He says, give me your son. He took him from her bosom and he carried him up to the upper room where he had been living. We look in this, we find Elijah practicing a truth that's preached in Galatians. It's Galatians chapter 6, just write in your notes, Galatians 6, 1 through 2. It says, those of you who are spiritual, that didn't mean, he didn't say those of you who are perfect, but he said those of you who are spiritual, that means you're spiritually connecting with God. You're seeking for God to be growing your faith. And yes, you're having your weaknesses and your struggles, but you're connected with God. Those who are connected to God need to bear people's burdens who are not connected to God. Those who are struggling in sin, deceitfulness, of bad theology, of what they think about God and life, you 
are to help bear their burdens. That's exactly what he does here. He bears her burden. He gets engaged. So take some notes. Number one, if I want to help somebody in my life who's struggling, number one, don't lecture them. Don't bring them the latest Sunday school answers. He didn't preach at her. He didn't correct her bad theology. He didn't say, before you can be blessed from heaven, you've got to correct your theology. You've got to believe this, 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 and this. You know what he did? He jumped into the pain with her. He bore a burden. Literally. Her burden was this son she's now holding and grasping and won't let go of because this is her only son. And Elijah says, give him to me. He took that burden, literally, but spiritually. So don't play the preacher game. Don't try to give them answers when they're hurting. Don't lecture them and don't point fingers at them and don't try to correct the theology. Just bear the burden. That's point number two. Reach out. Reach out in their hurt. Reach out in their pain. Just bridge into their life. Just be there for them when they're hurting the most. Don't try to fix the head. Get to the heart. That's what Elijah did. Elijah reached out in her pain. He shared that pain. He put that hug around the sun. He took him into his own arms. And number three... He did something, thank you Jesus, that'll wake the boy up that was dead. Uh, He did something, the only thing he could do, and what did he do? He didn't take the boy to the hospital, he took him to the upper room. Now, I would say this, I said in the first service, if for some reason, God forbid, I stop breathing while I'm preaching in the pulpit, I'm begging you to start praying for me, but I'm also begging you to get me to the hospital too. I'm not against hospital care. He didn't have that opportunity. There wasn't a hospital to take this guy to, so he did the only thing he could do. He took him to the upper room where he'd been living. You see, this wasn't his house. It was the widow's house. But God had brought him there, and just like he did at Kirith, he lived, he dwelt where God had placed him. And he dwelt in this upper room. And it was in that room that Elijah's faith had been growing It was in that upper room where every morning when he woke up, he looked to the heavens and he declared his love for God and received the love of God. It was there every night when he would lay his head on his pillow or go to bed that night that he would finish out the day communing with his God as his faith was growing, his upper room. And he takes him there because that's where he knew he could get the help this young man needed. God is the God of God of the impossible and so it says here that Elijah would pray and he'd pour out his guts to God and I love his prayer if you go back and you study it he basically says God what are you doing even Elijah didn't know even Elijah didn't understand this man of God there are going to be things that come your way you're not going to intellectually be able to fully grasp it that's okay and he said God I don't get it I don't know what you're doing I don't understand why would you do this it doesn't make sense but God, but God, I'm trusting you. And God, I'm going to ask you to do something I've never asked before. I want you to bring life into his life. Here's what we learn from Elijah when we close. Number one, in his prayer, you see, I'm convinced you have something you don't even realize you have. So many people are convinced of what we don't have, but never realize what we do have. Elijah could have lived in what he didn't have. I can't help you. I'm not a doctor. I haven't even spent the night in a holiday inn that would even qualify me to even suggest some medicine. I have nothing. No, no. He realized what he had. What was impossible for him as a man, 
was not impossible for the God who created that man. And so he took that issue to the upper room. Something has changed among us in the past months. And most of us have attributed that and understand why. It's because we started taking time in the service for us corporately to call out to the God of the impossible. We've humbled ourselves and we began to seek God and ask God to do crazy things. And he's doing it. It's happening. It's changing us. Our worship today, the hearts of our worship is different than where it was six months ago. I'm telling you, it is. And that's a work of God. And while I love our worship leaders who lead us well, and they are instruments in God's hands, they can't change your heart. They can just lead you to the one who can. But you've gotten there because you've sought the Lord, and the God of the impossible is changing us. Amen? And that's what he would do for this young man. But Elijah, he didn't pray the prophet prayer. He didn't pray the King James. He didn't pray something eloquent. You know what he did, number one? He just got transparent with God. God, I don't get it. God, I don't understand. Number two, he made it personal. He made it personal. Lord, I have this issue. And Lord, you have placed me here. And Lord, there is this need. And he listed the need. He got honest with God. That's the next thing. He got honest with God. And God, only you can change it. And then he took that impossible situation to the God of all possibilities. Are we praying like Elijah? Are we allowing God to stretch our faith, but not only stretch our faith, but to use our growing faith in somebody else's life to do what only he can do and bring life to somebody who's spiritually dead? I challenge you this week. Take on the spirit of Elijah. Take on the mantle of Elijah Find somebody like this widow, like this son, who have no life, who need the only one who can give them life. And as he did that, his faith painted outside the box. Look at it again, verse 21. Then Elijah stretched himself upon the child three times. He called the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray to you, let this child's life return to him. His faith is now learning to paint outside the box. I don't know of another story before Elijah's time, and I could be wrong, but I don't know of another time where anybody had prayed like Elijah. I don't know of a precedent that was there for Elijah to say, hey, just like you did here, do it again here. No, no, no. Elijah is praying, God, do what I've never seen done before. God, what is impossible, I'm asking you to do it. Would you be willing to pray outside the box? Would you be willing to trust God to do great and mighty things? Well, that faith not only paints outside the box, but that faith goes where no one has ever gone before. And as a result, his growing faith is now believing the unbelievable. Verse 22, for the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the life of the child returned to him and he was revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room in the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son is alive wouldn't it be awesome next sunday to rejoice when some moms and some dads come to see their children come to know the lord when there's someone whose neighbor who was dead in sin comes to life and we're able to say look and see they are alive just like jesus is risen from the dead they too now have life wouldn't that be glorious or are we just going to sit on the couch 
That wasn't just to the husbands in the room. That was to the Baptists in the room. Don't be sitting on the sidelines. Let God do the supernatural. And then verse 24. This is crazy cool. Then the woman who had no faith, this woman who had no groceries, this woman who had no son, he's just died, this woman who's mocking Elijah, the man of God and his God, now is being impacted by his faith. And she turns to him and she says, I now know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth. Elijah's faith has been refined. Elijah's faith is growing. Elijah's faith doesn't live by the facts. It lives in faith to the faithfulness of God now. And now there's a widow. And now there's a son who also found faith because they saw it in somebody else. Will there be anybody in heaven who places their faith in Christ because they encountered your faith? That God used you like he did Elijah to be a vessel in his hands? Or are we just going to go to church? Let's pray about it. With every head bowed and every eye closed. Awkward silence in the room. Feel it? Elephant in the room. What am I going to do with this? Where's my faith? Am I going to let God break me and refine me? Or am I going to be stubborn in my faith? Am I going to be cold in my faith? Or will I be like Elijah? God, grow me. God, stretch me. God, refine me. It could be that you're here and you're like the widow or like the son. You have no faith. You've encountered people of faith. You know somebody of faith, but you have no faith. And you say, well, i got a faith. I know there's a God. No, no, no. I'm talking about a saving faith. There's been a time in your life where you say, God, I'm a sinner. I'm separated from you. And God, only you can save me. It's impossible. I can't save myself. It's not from being a good person, a good man, a good woman. I'm not good enough. But God, you are. God, I've tried to earn my way to heaven. But Lord, I realize my righteousness is like filthy rags. God, save me. Is there somebody in this space or somebody online? that needs to make that your prayer today? Like the widow, oh, I need the word of the Lord. I need the faith that I see in Elijah. I need to be a person of faith. If that's you, our ministers will be here. Come, take them by the hand. Say, man, I need faith in Jesus. I need to trust him today. I need to be saved. That's all you got to say. We'll walk you through it. We'll pray with you right here, just like somebody prayed with me at at the very front of the stage of Convention Hall in Enid, Oklahoma. I didn't know what to do. I just knew I needed to be saved. And so I came forward. I'm going to ask you to do the same thing. Maybe you've come forward before in a service. You've been saved, but your faith isn't growing. Maybe you need to say, God, I need Zarephath. God, refine me. God, purge those things out of me that are not of you. God, change me. And he will. Maybe you need to pray for a widow or a son that's in your life. Somebody God has placed in your life that has no faith but needs the faith you have. The Jesus you know. Pray for them. If you'd like to join the church, we invite you to come as well. If you want somebody to just pray with you over that one you're praying for or over you and your faith, we'd love to pray with you here at the altar. You can come. I want to pray for you when I'm done praying. If you need to come for any reason... We'd love to minister to you. If you need to pray where you are, you pray where you are. 
But if you need to make a decision for the Lord today, I'd encourage you to step out and declare who Jesus is in your life. Father, may they do that now for your glory and your namesake. God, as we hear your voice, may we not let it go in one ear and out the other. May it make it all the way to our heart. And may we express that heart just like this widow. Whatever you're doing right now, do it in Jesus' name.